Our reading today um, begins in Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 28. And if you're using this Bible, it's on page 1211. So Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God would judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away with all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all.
When was the last time that you sat an exam? One of those really long ones where you have to write a lot. I know that some of you younger folk are about to enter exam season, so sorry for reminding you of that. And I have to say, I don't remember my A-levels with great fondness. Mainly because you had to write so much. Those memories of three-hour exams, where you had to write four essays in three hours. I remember often I wouldn't quite finish the paper. There was that mad sense at the end of panic, of rushing, where you see the clock ticking down, but you haven't got everything down that you wanted. So, it's time for the bullet points. You get down all you can in as quick a time as possible. You're rushing, getting it all down, just hoping the examiner will see something that he can go, oh yes, that, he knows what he's doing. If he'd had a bit more time, he would have gone on to explore and explain it in more depth. Well, the end of Hebrews has that kind of feel to it. Twelve chapters have been and gone where we've learnt much about priests and covenants, sacrifice, blood, tabernacles and so on. And then suddenly here in chapter 13, we are blitzed with a whole load of bullet points or bullet point-like statements which are focused on people's lifestyles. Almost as though the writer is running out of time. Suddenly he wants to get down as much as he can before his pen runs out. And on first reading or hearing, these things may seem entirely disconnected. In fact, separate from the rest of the letter. But as we know from the Bible, from God's word, there is clearly purpose in its positioning. It is, in fact, entirely connected to what has come before. I'm going to try and help you see that in the next few minutes. But before we dive into chapter 13, we do need to look back at the very end of chapter 12. To verses 28 and 29. So let's read those again. Chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Twelve chapters have told us that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, we are to be thankful and to worship God acceptably. And in chapter 13, the readers are shown how to do that. The readers of this letter seem to be Christian people that have been facing certain difficulties. Many of them are wondering whether to keep going. A summary message could be this. We have Jesus with us. He is better than anything else. Therefore, we must press on. And live lives worthy of him. So let's try and see what this acceptable worship looks like. And how we are equipped to live for Christ. 
There are actually numerous things in this chapter that we could devote an entire sermon to. We're going to have to push on through the chapter at some pace, just stopping off on occasion to dwell a bit more deeply at some points. So have a look at verse 1. Because firstly, the readers and us, as followers of Jesus, are called to love and support one another. Verse 1 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, this is a very simple reminder to us that church is not a building. It's not an organization. It's not just about our Sunday gathering. In fact, church is a community of people, of brothers and sisters. The church is a family, and a family that loves one another. Here at CEC, we have about 450 people that gather fairly regularly, attend our services. Over 200 people signed up as members of the church. Have a quick look around. Have a think. Do we love these people as our family? Do we have that deep-seated loyalty, that backing for one another? Do we look out for each other? Are we outward-looking? Or are we too absorbed in ourself or our own little group? Do we rejoice with one another? Do we suffer and grieve together? Do we put up with each other? Do we forgive each other? Do we encourage each other? Do we pray for each other? Our first challenge here in Hebrews 13 is to keep on loving each other. These people around you here are your brothers and sisters. They have been chosen by God to be in his family. Do we love them? How do we view each other? The second specific way we are to love and support one another is seen in verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Let's try and unpack this a little bit and apply it to us as a church. It sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? All this talk of angels and maybe angels turning up at your house. Weird. Well, this is referring back to an incident in the Old Testament where Abraham welcomed three visitors. They came to his house and he provided a meal for them. Little did he know that these three guests, these three strangers, were angels sent from God. And just as we were called to love one another within the church, this is a call to hospitality within the church too. Now back in first century times, there weren't such things as hotels or travel lodges. They didn't have Lenny Henry appearing on their TV screens advertising that beautiful night's rest in whatever it was, the travel lodge or whatever it's called. There were these places called inns, inns, I-double-N-S. Now these were places 
of ill repute, almost brothel-like, renowned for their immorality. Therefore, whenever a visiting speaker or a missionary passed by the church, they weren't sent to the local inn. There was a need for hospitality, a need for people in the church to take them under their roof, to take people in for the sake of the gospel, giving hospitality to someone not part of your household, a stranger. I'd say here at Chessington we have quite a history of some folk who have welcomed strangers into their homes, maybe even to come and live with them, to take up their spare room, to become part of their family for a while. I had exactly that experience becoming part of the Dalton family for over a year when I worked for Insight, our local schools work team, back in 1996-97. They basically took in a stranger. I'll tell you what, they definitely didn't get an angel. (laughs) But they were a great example. A great blessing. An attitude of openness. For the sake of the gospel. Looking outward. Looking to serve others. How good are we at welcoming strangers? It doesn't need to be for a year or a bit more than a year, Paul. Maybe it's just the way that we welcome people here on a Sunday morning. The way we welcome people into this room. Are we on the lookout for guests? Are we keen to see where the visitors are? I wonder even this morning, who are we looking out for? Who do we notice? Are we actively looking for the stranger, seeking to welcome them, make them feel part of the family? Or are we just happy to be with our mates, just to chat in our little groups, stay in our comfort zone? Without embarrassing him too much, I wonder if we have the Kev Connolly attitude. Hello. I don't know you. I'm Kev. And so the conversation begins. Or do we have the Neil and Viv Salter approach? Outward looking. Who can I see this morning that I don't recognize? Who can I say hello to? Who are we looking out for? And what about hospitality? What about our houses, people that we have around? Again, we've had a reputation here of a hospitable church. But I wonder, has that slipped a bit? Have we become too busy? Have we lost our outward outward focus a bit? Jules and I were extremely fortunate to be part of a 20-plus strong student group back here in the 1990s at the time that this King Centre was about to be launched. The church here went out of their way to welcome us, to be hospitable, to invite us into their homes. People never knew who was going to turn up to their houses that day, but they simply provided lunch. They cooked food for whoever turned up. 
Now, looking back at those times, they were significant. The church's hospitality has played an important part in young people being encouraged and being developed. So that today, there's a bunch of 40-year-old sort-ofs all over the place, both in this country and elsewhere, spread out across the nation. Manchester, Somerset, Hampshire, Devon, Ireland, Wales, Emmanuel Epsom, Chessington. These people are persevering, going on with God, having been encouraged by folk here. Now, Jesus was known for welcoming strangers, wasn't he? He would go out of his way to seek those that others wouldn't. God has welcomed us into his family. Who do we welcome? When do we last speak to someone we don't know? When do we last have someone round to our house we don't know? As the church grows, there may be a temptation to retreat into our little bubbles, into our comfort zones. But actually, isn't the growth of the church a wonderful opportunity to get to know the stranger, to get to know one another? And what a blessing that could be for us. And there's a third group of people in verse 3 that we're called to love and support. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them, as if you yourselves were suffering. Now this refers to fellow Christians suffering for the gospel, clearly happening back in the first century when this letter was received. And the church is simply called, do not forget them. Empathize with them. Take an interest in those who are suffering. Those who are suffering for the sake of Jesus. Don't take the attitude, oh, I'm so glad that's not me. Take the attitude, how do I support them? How do I empathize with them? How do I love them? So we're called to love and support one another. Secondly, the writer implores the readers to be content with what they have. Looking at verses 4 to 6. He uses two illustrations. The marriage bed and money. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now, I wouldn't describe contentment as a sexy word in our culture. You don't see magazine covers with, get contentment. It doesn't have that kind of ring to it, does it? It's seen as rather dull and safe. Our society is constantly telling us that we need excitement. We need something different. And that's best achieved through experimentation, pursuing something or someone else. But the Bible sees contentment as the most glorious of words. Verse 4, the marriage bed should be kept pure. Marriage should be honoured. 
The biblical picture of marriage is a wonderful thing. Designed, created by a good God. A beautiful gift where a husband and a wife can enjoy one another. Enjoy a deep, satisfying, lifelong relationship. Where they can enjoy sexual union, be fulfilled sexually. It is pure and enriching. And yet, we get restless. Can our partner really satisfy us? Wouldn't someone else give me more pleasure? Wouldn't they liberate me? The second half of verse 4 says that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. So be careful. Be careful. Resist the media's obsession with sexual experimentation. It can only lead to ruin. To impurity. To breakdown. Pursue marriage as God intended. It will give the most wonderful contentment. It's not just applied to the marriage bed, but to money as well. Verse 5 reads, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is probably an area that society challenges on almost the most. If only you had this, your life would be better. Your life would be fulfilled. Advertising is designed to make us restless. I suggest restless is the opposite of contented. Advertising wants us to pursue the dream. We quickly fall for cultural lies. If only we had that, we would be complete. Now, my granddad was very much a simple soul. He was an East Anglian farmhand, looked after the horses. He loved being outside. He loved his garden. He loved snooker on the telly. He loved a game of Scrabble with his grandson. However, he didn't know that many words. He would celebrate when he managed to get down Jif or Daz or Oxo. They were his words. He loved his wife. Seventy years married. He didn't own his own house. He died. With hardly a penny to his name. At his funeral at age 97, one word dominated it contentment. 
he learned to be content with what he had. Why? Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5b. God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He was content because he had God. A very simple relationship with him, but he trusted him and clung to him. He knew one of the greatest truths of Scripture. God is always with you. Now, as Christians, we can be content in God, can't we? We have the source of ultimate contentment. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Haddon Robinson, a theologian, said this. If you have everything else but the Lord, you don't have much at all. If you have the Lord's presence and little else, you can be content. Better to have a satisfied soul than a thick wallet. God offers security and meaning. The world cannot offer. And yet for some reason we pursue that, don't we? But with the security that God offers, see verse 6, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In other words, there is nothing worth pursuing apart from God. He is the answer. He gives us total contentment and security. So this morning, he calls you to Jesus, who in verse 8 is described as the same yesterday, today, and forever. He calls you to come to the constant one, the ultimate source of contentment. He will satisfy you. We must press on. Thirdly, acceptable worship is seen in the way that we view and treat our leaders, specifically our Christian leaders. Have a look at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now this can be quite a tricky section for church leaders to preach on because it talks about themselves. So while daft's away, let's dig in. Our world loves to knock its leaders, doesn't it? Britain has a reputation as a nation that builds people up so it can knock them down. In fact, we seem to actively seek ways to knock people off their perches, to dethrone them. Political leaders, royalty, business leaders, sporting leaders, celebrities, even church leaders. But we have a fascination with leaders as well, don't we? That's why recent election campaigns have been more about leaders' debates than anything else. Our world seems obsessed with Trump 
or Corbyn or May or... Now the Bible clearly states that a church should have leaders and they need to be listened to and respected. And very appropriately on a day where we consider new elders, there are messages here both for church leaders and for those being led. Let's firstly see the leader's responsibilities. Have a look at verse 7 again. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. The people here are being reminded about some leaders that actually have died and passed on. But the first thing that the leaders of the church must do is speak the word of God. There is no greater responsibility or greater privilege than to speak God's word to the church. Now, as our senior pastor, Daff, is delivering a message week by week of life and death. Anyone else who comes up here and stands and speaks to you, they are talking life and death matters. So leaders need to be immersed in the word so it just flows out of them. Secondly, in verse 7, leaders need to live the word out. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Church leaders are examples to be imitated. As we saw earlier, Timothy writes, leaders must be above reproach. Thirdly, verse 17, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Church leadership brings serious responsibility. Church leaders keep watch over the flock. One day, they will have to give an account to God about all of their flock. You may quite often hear Daff talking about empty seats here. You may hear him encouraging you to be at the church prayer meeting, to be here on a Sunday rather than elsewhere. Why? Why does he say this? Well, it's not actually because he just wants things as he wants them. That's not why. It is because he has to one day give an account to God for you. Each of you. Imagine that member's list in front of him. One day God is going to say, Daph, what about him? What about her? What what happened there? What about that? Leadership carries significant weight. And what are we called to as a church? Verse 7, remember our leaders. Verse 17, have confidence in them. Submit to their authority. Pray for them. Simply put, we should be people who want to follow our church leaders. Our disposition should be one of support. And have a look in verse 17. It says, we should want to make their work a joy, not a burden. There are far too many Christian leaders in this country, church leaders, whose work is a burden. Why? Because we make it so. 
Big question to ask yourself. Are you a joy giver to our ministry leaders? Or are you a burden? Not a great word, that. This isn't blind obedience. Yes, we'll do whatever you say. We'll do what it, no problem. This is supportive, helpfully questioning. But it is obedience. Looking to support. Aware of the significance of their role. Daff and our leaders need our prayers. There's so much in this chapter we could explore in greater depth. But we don't really have time to do so. But let me just show you fourthly. We're called to something else. In verses 9 to 16 and then in verses 20 to 21. We are called to share in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who gives us all that we need to serve him. Verses 9 to 16 very much build on the themes that are addressed throughout Hebrews. It speaks of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. If, in verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever... If in verse 12, Jesus suffered and gave up his blood for us. Then look at verse 15. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. We should continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Speaking his name. And then in verse 16, live a life that reflects his goodness. If God is our constant, then we don't need to give in to new teachings described in verse 9. We don't need to perform religious acts of ritual. These are of no benefit at all. We have the one who has sacrificed himself. In verse 11, we have the one, the high priest no longer needs to go and offer blood sacrifices for us. Christ Jesus has done it for us. Verse 11 shows us that when the high priest went to meet God, when he went to offer a blood sacrifice on our behalf, the animal's body was not allowed in. There was a barrier. It had to stay outside. Just look at verse 12. It's actually a wonderful gospel summary. Verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, to make the people holy through his own blood. Do you remember that old hymn? There is a green hill far away, outside the city wall, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. Jesus Christ suffered outside the city gate. Jesus was sent outside to a place of exclusion, a place of uncleanness. He was sent outside so that his people could become acceptable. He was sent outside to allow you and I to enter his presence, to remove that barrier. Jesus Christ was sent outside 
so that we could come inside. There's a famous story told of Captain Oates. He was part of the infamous 1912 Scots expedition to the South Pole. The men involved were attempting to journey back, facing really harsh conditions. In fact, conditions were winning. Captain Oates was suffering very badly from frostbite. So much so that he knew that the others were being held back. They were waiting for him, and they couldn't afford that. He knew the situation was desperate. As they suffered from a blizzard, as they sheltered, Oates, knowing the seriousness of the situation, said this, I'm going outside. I may be some time. Oates stepped into the blizzard, never seen again. He went outside to try and bring the others inside, to bring them home. Tragically, those words were only found in Captain Scott's diary next to his body. All the men died. This act of sacrifice could not save. But Hebrews tells us we have a better sacrifice. We have a sacrifice that does save, that will lead us home. No effort on our behalf, no worldly thing can satisfy. But Jesus Christ does. Are you seeking that satisfaction this morning? Are you seeking that contentment from somewhere? Jesus Christ calls you to him. Come inside. Come inside. And Christian brother and sister, verse 13, we are called to follow him. We are called to go outside ourselves. We're called to bear the disgrace that he bore, to live our lives as a sacrifice, a sacrifice to the one who gave his all for us. So I don't know if you see, but these seemingly cobbled together thoughts in Hebrews 13, these bullet points, they are actually a glorious collection of examples of living a life of sacrifice for Jesus Christ of acceptable worship to him. Living lives that are a response of the ultimate sacrifice that he made. The trouble is, we can't do this ourselves. We mess up. We struggle. We fail. We give in. The people reading this letter were in danger of giving up. Just like us, they needed to hear verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you 
with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ is with us. God will equip us with everything we need. So very simply, today, let's turn to him. Let's trust in him. Let's be content in him alone. Let's give ourselves fully to him. And keep going. Keep going. Encourage one another. Because Jesus Christ will never leave us. He will never forsake us. To him be the glory forever and ever.